Listeners, this is Kara Kandel of The Learning Curve here with my favorite co-host, everybody's favorite co-host, Gerard Robinson. Gerard, I'm wondering how are you feeling today? Are you feeling all this excitement in the air, all of the parent empowerment going on in, in American education at the moment? I am. And I can tell you that seven months ago, if someone would have said that the states would blossom in terms of school reform, both public and private, I would have said I'd like to see it. But the fact that it's happening and in states where, you know, people in our network have been trying to get laws for years, this is a good time for parental choice. I mean, it sure is. Thank you, COVID, for finally shining a light on all of the existing inequities in our system and then, you know, creating some new ones. Because I think what this has done is it's, um, you know, people people have awoken. Legislators are listening um, to parents. I It, it makes me a, a little sad that it, it took, um, you know, that some parents have been exercising their voice around this for years. And it took more parents and probably more parents of a different socioeconomic status and background mm-hmm. to, uh, to to make a lot of noise to make some of this happen. But I think that the the flip side of that is hopefully this is going to be good for for a lot more people. Um, we've got, I mean, there are just bills moving across this country, Gerard, that are really about about parents and about and about putting kids first. And it is it's really exciting. So I'm gonna my story of the week, of course, is about one that. Um, and I'm I'm personally incredibly excited about. I mean, I haven't said this very often in my life, Gerard, and I'm happy to be able to say it now. Yay, West Virginia! <laughs> so, <laughs> West Virginia. I mean, woohoo, go West Virginia! West Virginia. Last week they passed, and and the governor has now signed the most expansive education savings account program in the country. Now this is a big deal because, I mean, so there were pre-COVID. There were six ESA programs that were on the books. Only five of them were really running. And, you know, like two of them were in Florida and two mm-hmm. of them, right. And two of them were in Tennessee, but one of the one in Tennessee wasn't running. It had been, it had been, um, it, it's still in court, but anyway, mm-hmm. so then we go back, you know, during COVID we get two ESA like programs or they're ESA programs, but they're, they're for public school students and, and they don't have a private school element. So, so you add, you know, to actually, I'm sorry, three new programs. So that's Texas, Oklahoma, and Idaho. So we have just, you know, uh, been adding on these programs. Now in the States, it looks like we've got Kentucky has a new ESA. West Virginia has a new ESA. I've got my eyes on New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I've got my eyes on, on Missouri. This is really, really exciting stuff. But the thing about West Virginia, Gerard, is that it is expansive. This is basically a universal ESA. Now I am going to, I'm looking at an article out of West Virginia, um, West Virginia governor justice signs school vouchers bill into law. And I would just like to tell everybody not a voucher. Correct. Yes, it takes, it takes state money, but a voucher would be exclusively for private school tuition. This is really going to allow parents to choose from a variety of of educational services. You know, you literally wrote the book on this, that that parents and students need special educational therapies, tutoring, 
you know, and yes, private school tuition among many, many other things. But this is a really big deal. Um, the one thing that um, I'm going to be really curious to see how it pans out is that there is this, um, you know, a lot of states have this, like you have to have been enrolled in public school for a certain yep. period of time. Mm-hmm. But all the kids in West Virginia right now are currently in public school. <laughs> so I'm like, we're, you know, looking at that means like basically everybody's going to be able to get point. in sooner rather than later. I'm mm-hmm. also curious to know like, I think we should all be thinking about the supply side as what, you know, like, so what schools are, how many schools with, with seats open are going to be able to take kids, but also, and this is a really cool question. What kind of cool new providers are going to come into the state to serve kids now that families are going to be able to use state dollars to purchase the educational services they need? I think it's a huge win and I'm really excited to see how this one pans out, Gerard. Almost heaven. West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country Road. This is a great song about West Virginia. Say it again. John Denver, right? Yes. It is about West Virginia. Channel. You could channel John Denver. I, I love it. It's about West Virginia. Please proceed. No, my uh, father was born in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, I spent some summers there. In fact, I was in West Virginia. Shared some of that in our previous show. But this is a big win for a state that often is only talked about when it has big problems. And for a host of reasons, they're going to be all the naysayers and there'll be challenges. But this is a big, big win for Uh, West Virginia. And, um, you know, look forward to being a thought partner in ways that I can. I want to thank our friends at the American uh, Federation for Children, Ed Choice, Excel in Ed, this state policy network, the people at the local level who may not be a part of any of the groups that I name, who've been pushing for this for years for faith-based communities, but also there are public school teachers who support this as well. So I look forward to following this. And I think that's a great story, but I just had to get a country roads in on that one. Our listeners are loving it. Yeah, some of them are now crying and (laughs) they believe that I'm actually sick and dying. So, yeah. Well, my story, I don't have a song to, although I do. We'll see if you'll sing this one. This is on the other side of the coast. This is from California, my uh, former home state. And this is from um, our friend, Dr. Lindsey Burke, who's at Heritage. This is in the National Review, April 1st. And no, this is not an April 1st fool's joke. This is actually an April win. Uh, For some people, it's actually a joke. California's declining public schools. And first of all, she really lays out the case at the beginning that California is experimenting with a lot of things right now in its K-12 system. Uh, It's recently become the first state uh, for the Board of Education to pass a statewide ethnic studies curriculum for K-12 schools. Uh, The state has also supported a number of initiatives to try to expand uh, issues of diversity in the classroom. And then she dives down more into what this uh, looks like for COVID, but particularly what it looks like for public education. So she talks about uh, the American Enterprise Institute's return to learn tracker. And they identified that California is the most cautious state in the country when it comes to reopening schools. I was actually shocked to know that just 9.5% of school districts in the state are fully open in person, 9.5% of the school districts. And this is the largest school system in the country. 
And then we say, and then she goes on to talk about, you know, what some of the people, Chloe DeAngelis uh, and others have talked about teacher unions being part of the challenge. And then she identified city of San Francisco. Listen to this. The city sued the school district for refusing yeah. to provide in-person learning for children. This is San Francisco, a uh, some would say really a poster child for all the politics of liberalism, progressivism. And there are a lot of great things that San Francisco is doing. There's a lot of things that they've done that have spread across the country that have worked well. But people are shocked about two things. Number one, they have one of the highest percentage of children in a big city who don't go to public schools. Nearly 55% of the school-age children go to private schools. And when you look at the black population, which is really, really low, guess what? They make up the majority of the, uh, watch the majority, a sizable portion, uh, outsized portion of the children in the school system. But if you think that's a challenge, Lindsay reminds us that most of the students in the state have been out for over a year now. And just imagine what that looks like for someone who's 13, 14, or 15. But even before COVID, California had challenges. Just 30% of the California eighth grade students could read uh, at a proficient level. And you know, when you look at the figures, it's 19% for Hispanic students, 10% for black students. When you look at math outcomes, it was no better. 29% of California eighth, California's eighth graders overall reached proficiency and just 15% of Hispanics and again, 10% for blacks. So before COVID, you had challenges. Schools aren't open. There's a lot of talk about learning loss. And then we talk about some other challenges. And when you look at the amount of money, uh, we add all things in, you know, the California Policy Center estimates that with all expenses included, California is likely spending north of $20,000 per student. So, and she makes really good points. And she basically says that we've got to think about what freedom looks like. And if we're going to talk about the pedagogy of the oppressed and the oppressor, maybe we should look at uh, characteristics of many private schools and what they're doing to try to foster freedom. So, that's what's going on in my former home state. Uh, there's some good people there doing some good work. But I got to tell you, when I saw 9.5%, I was shocked. Oh, it's yeah. It's when I read that too, it's that is that is serious. That is egregious. I mean, listen, I don't know. My my home Commonwealth of Massachusetts has been has been struggling too. I think we've had more kids in school than that. And as of as of last week, you know, um, our commissioner was like, nope, you're, you're going back uh, with very few exceptions. Right. But California, you know, the thing about California is, um, too, the other thing to consider is this is a place I think of like Florida, where basically they said, Listen, uh, during COVID, parents have have an option to choose, but public schools have to be open in some fashion to serve kids because right. there 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 are a variety of reasons why. And as we've talked about this ad nauseum, but now we have a year's worth of data to know that schools can be safely open during this time. That that right. the private schools, but this is this is quite possible. California is also a place that has could could be such an innovative place for thinking yes. about how learning should look. I think about the natural disasters that the residents of California endure, especially in this past decade, just the past couple of years, natural disasters on top of COVID, on top of all of this. And, and, and there's, there's so, seems to be so little innovative thinking about how you can serve kids when they have to be mobile and how, you know, and, and as well as like, what can like reabsorbing kids into schools when they are open look like all of these things. And it seems like to echo your point, the news out of California is just always more and more depressing 
about about its public schools. I mean, I remember in graduate school, we used to look to California and say, and here are examples of what not to do in public education policy. And it seems like what Lindsay's pointing out is um, this is yet yet another example of what not to do. And, and you know, now the governor is being recalled there, very contentious. And you have to you have to assume that uh, the way all of this has been handled is playing no no small part in that in that effort. Some of the states that we often highlight, we would call local control states, that there's a lot of power that really comes from the local level. I'd say that some of that stuff is truly true in California, um, but they do have a strong board of education. They also have a very uh, strong governor who's got a pretty big, you know, vision of where he wants to go. But if you take a look at a place like Los Angeles, which is the second largest school system in the country, within the city of Los Angeles, you actually have you know, over 80 zip codes, you have multiple school systems within a system. So they have interesting dynamics, but you're also home to Hollywood, you're home to Silicon Valley, you're home to the place of imagination. And you have some of the poorest students across racial economic lines in the country. If you could make it work there, you can make it work anywhere. But I think there's just some very interesting dynamics. I think teacher unions are a part of it. But I think one of the untold challenges in California are, A, all of a sudden you realize that freedom isn't free. That as much as we even you know really talk to parents about taking power, taking over, there's a parent revolution group. As much as we talked about that, well, here's the moment where parents should have been prepared to move in. And for a host of reasons, they did not. It's not often mm-hmm. because of lack of will. They had other challenges like taking care of their families and sickness and jobs to deal with. But this is something that we as a school reform movement have to take a good look at because this should have been our moment. The millions that we've invested in that state to really get families together didn't pan out on this one. I think that's one factor. And then number two, we've under estimated just how really strong the private school sector has stepped up. And again, from the school reform perspective, we should be cheering and supporting six California Catholic schools. uh, It was announced in a newspaper a few days ago uh, have closed. And it's just one of many that have closed. But I think we as a school segment need to take uh, an opportunity to cheer on the, the private schools that are doing well there. And also accept that, you know, this was a big moment for us. And for whatever reason, it just didn't pan out. But that's another story for another show. Yeah, we could do a whole show about this. But now, listen, we've we've got a lot to talk about coming up because we have a fabulous guest. This is going to be a lot of fun. I think, Gerard, we are going to be talking to the BBC classics professor, Bettany Hughes. And um, if you've ever seen her work, watched her work, heard her work, read her work, it's just fascinating stuff. Um, So another great guest on The Learning Curve coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, I am here today with Professor Bethany Hughes. She is an award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster who has devoted the last 25 years to the vibrant communication of the past. Her specialty is ancient and medieval history and culture. Her first book, Helen of Troy, Goddess, Princess, Whore, has been translated into 10 languages. Great title. Her second, The Hemlock Cup, Socrates, Athens, and the Search for the Good Life, was a New York Times bestseller and was shortlisted for the Writers Guild Award. Her third, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities, was shortlisted for the Runciman Award and was a Sunday Times bestseller and has been translated into 12 languages. 
Her most recent book, which we're really excited to talk about today, is Venus and Aphrodite, History of a Goddess, currently shortlisted Brunsemann Prize. Hughes has written and presented over 50 TV and radio documentaries for the BBC, Channel 4, Netflix, Discovery, PBS, The History Channel, National Geographic, BBC World, IITV, and her programs have now been seen by over 500 million people worldwide. No doubt some of us have probably watched them while locked up this past year. She was named as one of the BBC's 100 Global Women, and as a commentator, she is asked to contribute to the New York Times, The Guardian, The Times, The Sunday Times, Prospect Magazine, and The New Statesman. In 2017, Professor Hughes was chosen as one of London's 20 most influential cultural people by the Evening Standard in their 1,000 awards. In 2019, Bettany became chair of the Man Booker International Prize for Fiction, uh, a prize that I appreciate so much, and was awarded an Order of the British Empire for Services to History. In 2020, she was given Europe's prestigious Cultural Heritage Awards, the first woman ever to receive this honor. So fantastic. Professor Bettany Hughes, thank you so much for joining me on The Learning Curve today. Delightful to be here. And I'm I'm really pleased that even though we can't be together in person, as an ancient historian, as you can tell, I love I love all things ancient. And technology comes from an ancient Greek word, techne. Uh, and the roots of the ancient Greek word techne are a really old proto-Indo-European root tech, uh, which means to weave together. So at least technology is allowing us to be woven together across thousands That's of miles. Fantastic. As it as it has for the past year for so many of us kept us going, so as we mentioned your your considerable and wonderful bio at the beginning you're so accomplished but let's let's start from where you are right now you have just published another book uh, entitled Venus and Aphrodite History of a Goddess and this explores the ancient deity of love and her impact on our understanding of the mythology and history of beauty romance and passion could you speak a little bit more about the origins of Aphrodite and many of us know her role in sparking the Trojan War um, how she's played across Western culture. Like what, what can she teach us today? Tell us a little bit more about what you discuss in your book. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, she She's kind of incredibly influential as a goddess. And I wrote the book, basically, I have to say, because I was so sick of seeing this sort of pathetic creature wafting around on Valentine's Day cards, you know, the Venus and there being Venus razors and people talking about kind of, you know, erotic passion and it just meaning kind of romantic love. And I thought, oh, there is so much more to this incredible goddess. So that was why I was inspired to, to write her story. Um, because she's a remarkable creature that the the ancients um, and particularly the Greeks, I have to say, are very good at thinking about what are the things that really matter in this world, what matter to human lives. And then they give that concept a name and a face and it becomes a goddess. So in the case of Venus, she's really the incarnation of desire. Um, but not just sexual desire, desire um, to be great in the world, uh, military desire, political desire, personal desire. And, and I think that's the most fascinating thing to study in humans is, is kind of what inspires us and provokes us to try to do more, to be more, to be greater. 
So if you follow in the trail of, of Venus Aphrodite right the way through time, it's it's a it's a pretty high octane journey. And I make the point in the book that, um, again, unlike this kind of blonde creature that she's become, she originally starts out life as a goddess of war as well as of love. So she's kind of the two sides to the coin. And really, again, that's because desire has two sides. We all know that desire can promote us and push us to do great things, but it can also get us into trouble. So, um, so I'm kind of following her trail across thousands of years. And it's a, it's a journey that takes me to the Middle East, uh, to, to Cyprus, to uh, Egypt, to North Africa, to the to the great Roman city of, of Pompeii, even, um, and right the way through to the modern world. Well, it sounds like it's it's a really exciting read, and we are we're excited to to have yet another book out from you, and I'm sure lots more to follow it. Now, you mentioned just really the the importance of the Greeks and the importance of everything that they've given us in terms of mythology and literature. Um, so, really, we can think about the Greeks of having established the foundations of Western philosophy, um, and you've talked about this over time through your books and your broadcasting. We here on the learning curve, we, you know, we talk a lot about education. It's, um, we are, uh, we have many diverse guests on this show, but we always ask a question that comes back to education. Can you help us understand why, in your opinion, setting the classics, um, including figures like Socrates is vital for education in the 21st century? Gosh, well, there's so many reasons, you know, it depends how long we've got. But I think um, there are both kind of uh, big philosophical region, reasons and, and very particular ones. I mean, there's just a kind of fundamental notion about uh, humanity is that although we should never live in the past, we're fools if we don't admit that we live with it. Um, and if you think about it, you know, the conversation we're having now, kind of 45% of the words and phrases we're using are derived from the, the ancient languages of Greek and Latin. Um, we are sort of swimming in the sea of antiquity, if you like. We were just talking about Venus and Aphrodite. If you happen to go to a restroom that's got a female symbol on it, that will be the symbol of the goddess Aphrodite. If you're a man and you go to a, a, a male restroom, that's the yeah. symbol of the god Mars, or they could both be combined. So it, uh, the, the ancient world is around us in so many ways. But it gives us a kind of reservoir of ideas and experiences that we can reach out to in the modern world. Uh, we're both distant from it, so we can observe it and learn from it. Um, there's a beautiful uh, uh, ancient writer called Dionysus of Halicarnassus who says that history is philosophy. It, it teaches us by example. Um, but but I think there's almost something more scientific at play here that we now realize that physiologically we are creatures of memory. So scientists tell us that we don't have memory in a kind of chest of drawers in one side of our brain. Um, memory is carried in synaptic uh, links and electrical impulses right across our brain. And we cannot have a future idea unless we access a memory of some kind. So a previous idea or a physical experience. So if we deny the past, it's not just that we're not interested in history. It means that we're cauterizing our possibilities as humans. We're, we're actually um, cramping our potential in the present world and in the future. So uh, history matters for that reason, particularly ancient history. Of course, there's a really important process for educators as well. If you study the ancient world, you have to have empathy and understanding for another's lives, even if they're living in a complete, completely different time 
in a completely different space. So it teaches us to care. If you look at the ancient world, there are as many gaps as there are uh, presences. So you have to use your imagination and your uh, initiative when you're trying to understand that world. You have to be very granular in the way that you look at the evidence from the past, whether it's documentary textual evidence or whether it's archaeological evidence. So the actual process of studying the ancient world is incredibly good for us, good, good for students and scholars and everyday women and men alike. Um, but also I just think there's a kind of companionship to it because um, the ancients, exactly as you say, they're living at a time where they're often really writing the blueprint for civilization. So they have to work really, really hard to fathom the very best way to live in the world. Um, so if we have access to that kind of energy and ideas, then, it, then it's fantastic for our own lives. I mean, one really important thing to say is uh, the ancient Greeks are hugely influenced by the Near East, by the Eastern Mediterranean, by the Middle East, by North Africa. So one very important thing, I think, is never to look at, at uh, any kind of history or indeed, frankly, any kind of present in silos and imagining there to be neat, straight lines dividing cultures and civilizations and uh, uh, motivation. This this is a this is a world which is based around the Mediterranean. So influences from Egypt, from what was Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and Lebanon are as important for the ancient Greeks as as Greek culture itself. And we should never for, forget that. But if, so very long answer to your question. But kind of you say you know what, why should we why should we study them? Let, let's take Socrates um, as a for instance. I many I, I kind of think really that Socrates isn't just searching for the meaning of life, but in a sense for the meaning of our own lives, because it's almost like he sees the 21st century happening. Mm -hmm. Often when you you read Socrates' ideas, it's it's just like he's talking about you and me now. You know, all all of us living in the 21st century, uh, because. Partly because he asks questions, you know, famously Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth mm -hmm. living. It's this notion that uh, inquiry shouldn't be seditious, but should be central to what it is to be human. Uh, but also just, just his kind of opinions on the world, the fact that he's very anxious about a kind of runaway materialism taking over um, society. He thinks the very best thing that we can do is to sit in a room together and debate ideas, to, to listen to other opinions. He's, he's, he's very opposed to dogma. Um, really interestingly, I think as well, is that uh, when he's operating uh, 2,500, 2,400 years ago, this was a time uh, when writing was just becoming kind of norm in society. And He's very suspicious about writing, Socrates. He, he kind of has an allergy to the written word. And he says famously that, that the issue with writing is that once words are set down, they become orphans. They don't have their fathers to protect them. They can be out in the world. Mm. And I think all of us recognise that. Wow. Yeah, from the very <laughs> simplest thing of a badly sent email through yeah. to an angry tweet, uh, a, a, an inappropriate tweet and a note that is posted on Instagram, which has huge, huge potential to destroy lives. Um, and as I said, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that he really perceives that to be a problem of writing before writing has become uh, a, a natural part and parcel of everyday life in, in civilization.
That's wow. There's so much there. I think that you've just caused me to to want to ask three more questions. But <laughs> I think you know, let let's pick up where with this notion of you know his his caution of of writing and and to your point, how so many of us can relate to that today. Whether it's as you point out, having sent a poorly worded or or hastily written or angrily written email, but also to it just the way in which. Social media, what we write on social media, what we say in a moment's time has come, you know, in some cases it's been re- related to government <laughs> in here. You know, we we famously had um, a recent president here in the U.S. who liked to, as some would say, govern by tweet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- so there's really great implications. Can you talk a little bit about, I think that this is part of what you're getting at, a little bit more about civic life. So at one time we've got, you know, Socrates and he gives us some several cautionary tales, but you also mentioned in your discussion that, that, you know, is the Greeks really laid the foundations for us, which is why we still reference them today. Can you talk a little bit more about what we can learn specifically from studying these aspects of civic life in Athens and Sparta and and the Greek city-states? Well, I think there's a very kind of basic uh, um, idea that, again, Socrates gives us, and in fact, that other city-states as well as Athens were very aware of, that that if you establish a democracy, democracy isn't a kind of magic word. Democracy doesn't make things okay. It doesn't make the world all right. You have to educate a population to be fantastic Democrats, and that's when democracy works. Um, so uh, I'm sure you probably know this, but the, you know the word idiot that we use uh, today is basically a Greek word. Um, it comes from the Greek idiotes. And idiotes meant somebody who didn't engage in civic or political life. So somebody who was so obsessed with their own personal world, they, they didn't think in a broader sense about how their actions and ideas were impacting the broader community. So those are really fundamental, really strong ideas that that we should still employ today. And I think actually as well, you know, just to kind of come back to the to the to the tweeting and the angry words and the danger of the written word. Um, another extraordinarily relevant and pertinent Greek idea is this um, word idea feme, which means uh, slander or rumour or gossip. And feme comes down through the Latin as farmer and then through to us as fame. So if you think mm. about that, suddenly you understand the dangers and perils of seeking fame for fame's sake, because the origin of the word fame is slander, rumor, or gossip. So it's an entirely negative concept. So, um, you know, they, we have a lot to learn from them. But as I said, I think particularly this notion that they really realized as they're kind of experimenting with big ideas like democracy, and democracy, when it first comes about in Athens, people are suspicious of it, but they also then get incredibly caught up by it and excited by it. So you have aristocrats from uh, Socrates' world calling their eldest sons democracies. You know, it'd be like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think, you know, the most important thing is in our lives, probably kind of vaccine. It would be like, you know, us calling our, our, our young daughters or sons Vaxan or something. Yes, yeah. it's you know, kind of changed our world. So yeah. um, I think we can learn a huge, huge amount from um, studying these uh, early experiments in different kinds of social constructs. I mean, even the Spartans, who have a kind of uh, they have a social pact between themselves, but they don't allow change. This is this is the issue. They have, in some ways quite a beautiful idea that you need to be selfless, that everything you do is for the greater good um, of your community around you and the state, which is kind of 
sounds beautiful. But then, of course, you realize that they were, uh, um, uh, as was most of the ancient world, um, um, heavily supported by a slave population. They they enslave a whole other group of of Greeks, um, as well as taking the usual slaves in battle um, in, and in pirate raids. So, you know, this is there's there are beautiful things about that ancient world, but we should never have rose tinted spectacles. You know, it is a it is a, a brutal and oppressive world too. But we can look at what they were trying to do with their lives. And as I said, one of the main things is this notion that you know the word civilization itself is connected to the notion of of kives of citizens that you cannot have civilization unless each and every one of us is an active citizen and that's absolutely what the, what the great philosophers of the time socrates and indeed his near contemporaries buddha and confucius said is that it's down to us basically i'm i'm hugely reducing the kind of extraordinary socratic canon here but sort of basically if we're as good as we can humanly be individually by logical definition the world would be a good place well, you've just given me several nuggets actually to ponder over the dinner table with my family tonight and my children <laughs> especially. So thank you for that. But, you know, so it, it occurs to me, and of course I was educated here in the U.S. and I read um, probably the classics in one advanced class in high school. I don't think it was something that uh, many of my peers probably even had access to. Um, but listening to you speak really underlines the what what reading the classics can give us what being, you know, having roots in these ideas and seeing the through line can really help us to understand not only our own context today, but, but recent history as well as, as, as well as, um, history long ago. What do you think, Professor Hughes, at, you know, aside from curriculum and all of this, is there something specific that you would tell educators to do to really encourage young people to appreciate classical antiquity and appreciate the lessons that it has to offer us? Uh, well, I think there's a fundamental um, lesson that was very popular, again, at the time of Socrates, um, which circulated again, actually, with Confucius and, and Buddha as well, that this notion that you should always educate for character and for soul, not just to catalogue learning, not just for rote learning, not just not just with the idea of of, of yeah, examination passing and careers, but you should educate the whole person. I mean, that is that that still stands as an incredibly important principle to have. I think in terms of hooking people into these worlds, you know, we're pushing against an open door because um, actually, if you think about it, you know, we're very familiar with the world of the Greek myths, for example, even if we don't realise. It. And kids mm. are. They, we ha talk about a Midas touch, an Achilles heel, mentors, the Olympics. You know, going on an odyssey using using an atlas. Have, hopefully, not having an Oedipus complex. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they're kind of part, a part of our everyday lives. I have to say as well, I, I actually think um, that Hollywood and the gaming world have done a huge amount to make the ancient world in incredibly accessible to the young. So often they're they're playing with characters from the Odyssey, or they're going to see kind of movies featuring Hercules or um, uh, Achilles, and and they are fascinated by these worlds because they these are heroic characters, anti-heroic, superheroic heroes who are flawed. Um, uh, so I think you know, in a way, it's very easy. They they are popular already. We just need to find that route into the seminar hall or to the classroom. But 
you know, a simple, if you're going to ask me just sort of one reason to study the classics and these classical characters, think, for instance, of the beautiful uh, poetess Sappho, uh, this this incredible woman mm-hmm. who lived in the island of Lesbos. And she describes uh, with such acuity the terrible business of falling in love for the first time. And, you know, I'm sure I've fallen in love for the first time. I remember it being a disaster when I was a teenager. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you, you, you did and many of our listeners. Yep. <laughs> but she's, she's brilliant. So if you think, you know, she's writing or uh, composing close on 2,600 years ago. And she's the first person to describe love as bittersweet. Although she's actually <laughs> slightly more realistic and she describes love as sweet and then bitter. Um, mm. But you just sort of think, actually, all, all the classes that we give, the fact that we could say to young people, there is this woman living on this island thousands of years ago and she understood you she understood the difficulty that you were having she describes love as you feel as though you have fire running under your skin um you know i think i think as i said it before it's hugely helpful to have somebody it's almost like they're they're holding out their hands across time and space and saying it's okay you're, you're not alone there are a few of us who've been through this before so so if you're going to start anywhere uh, i would start with a single sappho a single sappho poem which has utter relevance to contemporary lives. That's absolutely fantastic. And and thank you too for confirming my belief that it's it's actually okay to let my children watch some of these movies, you know. (laughs) Household favorites and actually to your point have led to really wonderful readings and further conversations about about these fantastic characters. Um, Professor Hughes, we do not want to let you go without asking you to give us a little taste of your latest book, Venus and Aphrodite, History of a Goddess. Um, Would you mind before we leave leaving us with a passage. Oh, I'd absolutely love to. Thank you. So, um, yeah. So this is just kind of looking really at the at the power of Venus Aphrodite, the fact that she is the incarnation of desire and and what we do with it, and um, and really therefore her kind of lessons to the world that we're living in today. Aphrodite can be a catalyst not just for our baser moments, but for our most elevated. She's a vehicle not just for passion, but for philosophy, a sounding board we can use to think with as well as to feel. Desire is the thing that makes us feel great about the world and therefore be great in it. It's the life force that spurs us on to do, to be, to think. The point of love, of desire, is not just gratification, but symbiosis. The point of human heartedness to nourish wisdom and the swelling joy of human relations, physical, intellectual, social, civilizational. Aphrodite's children, by Ares, the god of war, are indeed Deimos and Phobos, dread and fear, but also harmony. And perhaps what Aphrodite asks us to do when we commemorate her is not to seek the desire that destroys, but that unites that pulls communities together, not apart. She is at some times a wound, but she is also the bandage. The ancients understood that desire is worthy of respect. Human relations of all kinds are hard. The life story of Aphrodite from prehistory to the present, invented by human minds, can help us to decode human desire a little, to make it our ally, not our undoing. So perhaps then it's best to think of her as the Greeks did, the goddess who mixes things up. 
not a deity of raw, unilateral, single-minded ambition or passion, but a consequential force, a reminder of what happens when we impose those passions on others and on the world around us. Aphrodite Venus, the heavenly Paphian queen, is far more than just a gorgeous goddess of love. She is an incarnation of and a guide through the messy, troubling, quixotic, quickening business of mortal life. Messy mortal life. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, listeners, this has been Professor Bethany Hughes. Um, Professor Hughes, thank you so much. What I, I know that our listeners will look forward to reading your book, and it's just been a pleasure to spend this time with you today. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Let's let's try and do it in person next time. You know, if COVID oh, wouldn't that be lovely? I tell you what, we'll we'll come to you. I'm <laughs> I'm looking I'm looking very much forward to an international flight. So <laughs> if Pioneers Brilliant. listening, they can arrange that, right, Jamie and Michaela? Thank you so much, and until next time. And this week's tweet from the Washington Post, Jonathan Haidt, the the headline is, Gerard, will school be back to normal this fall? Kind of, sort of, maybe. And so this this is a link to a a really um, great article by Laura Meckler and Donna St. George. And, you know, it's just getting at the heart of all of these like, so, uh, you know, and we've talked about this before, Gerard, a lot of schools across the country just now are opening their doors for full-time in-person learning just in time to not give tests and, um, and let kids go home for the summer. But thinking to fall, even with so many um, teachers in this country, thank goodness, round of applause, you know, getting vaccinated, et cetera. There's still these looming questions about can schools open, will they be open? And, and this gets at like what schools are planning for. And it's talking about some large urban districts that are planning, you know, one hybrid option, one in-person option, one remote option. And there's a part of me that's just like, can we please just have the plan A that says everybody that needs to be back in school is back in school because we know, as you and I talked about at the top of the show, Gerard, a lot of schools across this country called private schools have been doing it for all kids. And I also would appreciate if um, we could focus a little bit more, a little, a little bit less on what the large bureaucracies want and believe they can't do because they so rarely talk about what they can do and what parents want and what parents need and mm-hmm. um, and, and looking at these exemplars we have of what's possible. So that's my tweet. I, I, recommend, I recommend the article. And, oh, man, I hope we can stop talking about this sometime soon, don't you? I do. I look forward to seeing uh, better days. Yeah. All right, Gerard. Well, we're going to let you go because I know that you are headed off to a very COVID safe, uh, lovely vacation at an undisclosed location. We won't we won't uh, tell our listeners so they bother you. But I hope you have a lovely time. You and your family enjoy some sunshine. And we'll be looking forward to talking to you again next week. Look forward to it. And if I did country roads, I also have to say California dream and California. <laughs> you've, been, you've been thinking about that for quite a while, haven't you? I have. There you go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll let you know what the topic of the week is each time. So here's, here's a challenge because next week's guest, Gerard, we're going to be talking to Jay Matthews of the Washington Post. The title of his new book is an optimist guide. This makes me chuckle. I can't wait to hear what he says. An optimist guide to American public education. Gerard, I hope you have a wonderful week. And until next time, take care. Goodbye. Will do. 